Ladies and gentlemen, your very own Michigan State Spartans. Goal scored by Fatai Alashe, Ryan Keener, and the cast. Let's hear it for your MSU Spartans, Rachel Van Poplen. Goal scored by Mary Catherine Fiebernitz. Few national team players here on the Seattle Sounders, Clint Dempsey, Eddie Johnson. Welcome to Corner Kick. This is your host, John Yales, and with me today in studio is Brooks Lambeer, co-host of Corner Kick. Today, Brooks and I will be discussing the game of college soccer, specifically the rules, the idea of expanding the regular season into the spring season, and is college soccer producing professional soccer players? Brooks interviewed Northwestern's men head soccer coach, Tim Lenahan, and an editor and reporter at Top Drawer Soccer, Travis Clark. We also interviewed men's head soccer coach, Damon Rensing, along with a redshirt freshman here at MSU, Jerome Cristobal. Fox soccer reporter Leander Sharlocken wrote a four-part opinion series on the, ser- on the game of college soccer and what he believes needs to be addressed, as well as where it stands on producing talent for professional soccer. The game of college soccer has slightly differed from the professional soccer game, specifically the substitution rule and the overtime rule for regular season. Coaches are allowed to sub as many times as they want in the first half, but in the second half, players can only re-enter a game once. Here's Michigan State's Damon Rensing's view on changing the substitution rule in college soccer. Basis, you know, um, you know, I think the substitution rule certainly could could change a little bit to to modify. Um, I'm sorry, not to modify, but to reflect what the rest of the world does. Um, you have youth teams that are doing it. You have reserve teams that are doing it. You can certainly add a de- uh, developmental piece to that. You know, it doesn't have to be three subs and you're out. But I think we need to to certainly certainly look at that and, and see if we can't adjust it. Um, and I think the main reason is the game management piece. I think when you look at players from 18 to 22 in this country, they they can they can learn to, to manage games and it's hard to manage games if you just work as hard as you can and then you get subbed out and then you bring somebody else on so soccer is meant to be a 90 minute game um with ebbs and flows and that the people are the player it's a player's game they're supposed to solve it it's not supposed to be solved through you know me subbing wing players every 10 minutes or something like that so um and i think that you see some reflection in that when you see our our, our youth national teams at that level maybe not quite doing it here's the view of northwestern's tim lenahan yeah, and I think that split season addresses both. I mean, we can't change the substitution rule now because of the fact that we have you know, 14 days for preseason, okay? If you told Real Madrid or Barcelona or Bayern Munich they give 14 days for preseason, okay, and then the first weekends you've got to play Friday, Sunday, you know, in various tournaments around the country, and it's going to be 90 degrees, and they expect you to play, you know, the whole time, you know, there'd be a lawsuit the first time somebody got hurt. Here's the player perspective from Jerome Cristobal. Yeah, the substitution, it's different. In academy, it's kind of like the top level where once you're subbed out, you're out, unlike college when you can do one reentry. And I think, like, people really want to make that connection or a way to get soccer in the u.s to be at the next level like in europe and stuff like that so when they're talking about substitutions i i think that they should try to revolve it like that where one substitution you're out and maybe even limit it to a number of people that can actually play in the game because when they um 
when you know that there's only going to be how many people are going to play that game, I think that'll better your team as well because now you're fighting for how many substitutions, let's just say three could go in. So uh, you got 14 players playing, then that makes it more competitive, and I think soccer all around in the U.S. will get better. All right, Brooks, you heard what Damon said. He says it's supposed to be a 90-minute game. Um, it's a puzzle that he's not supposed to solve with fitting guys in with substitutions and whatnot. What's, what's kind of your take on that? What do you think about that? I mean, I agree with Damon. It's something that, you know, it, it's the, something that you train the guys, you do all this off-season training, and you train them to be fit for a 90-minute game. And then you have this substitution rule where anyone can sub in players anytime. But I think in Damon's case, what he has, he can do that, as he mentioned, that he hasn't sub a lot, and what, what we know since we covered the team. So, I, you know, I think that's, Damon's right. It's something that the players need to figure out. It's something that they need to be like, oh, do I chase down this defense? Do I chase down this ball, you know, the, when they're knocking it around as an offensive player? You know, how much do I chase the ball? And, you know, how much energy do I conserve with making runs and, you know, spreading the field and uh, and whatnot? So it, it, he does bring up a great point about how it's it's the player's job to solve it. And, you know, obviously it's his coach to manage how they play. But he brings up a good point. Yeah, I, I agreed with Damon and yourself. It feels like it is kind of, it's weird to think about it like that, but it does kind of feel like it's kind of like cheating the game almost. Like um, it's kind of just like this flaw in college soccer that allows maybe um, a team that's not at the same level to maybe play up with a team that's a little a little deeper because of this rule. I, I think it needs to be changed just to get to the core of soccer and, like he said, get to the core of the game. It's it's a puzzle that the players need to solve, um, and this is kind of like a cheat in the puzzle. It helps get some guys by, helps a coach get by, um, and it's something that you can change pretty quickly. But moving on to what Jerome said, the player perspective, he, he kind of likes the idea of moving towards less subs because you can you can fight for those substitutions like if you're only bringing in three guys a game that means everyone on the bench is dying to get that substitution role that that super sub at the end of the game but he also likes the idea of being able to play more minutes just like any player um so he he seemed kind of torn what what was your feeling on that i mean jerome brought up a good point also that you know this he i mean he likes the three substitution rule um and you know choosing a squad you know with only like so many players you can pick from you know you can't bring your whole team i think that's what he was trying to describe to us whereas you know it's a professional level where you pick so many guys and then so many guys are not you know in uh, in the you know full starting team uh you know he brought up a great point and you know i think it's something that it would be interesting for college soccer because, you know, college coaches would have to coach with more strategy now. You know, it's just going to be, it'll be interesting just to see if they could, what strategy coaches are going to bring. And then also what you're going to see too is, you know, what time do I sub these players out? Is it going to be in like Premier League soccer? A lot of the times where it's kind of like the last 20 minutes, you're going to throw someone in there. You know, also you got to be careful about the adjustments you make at halftime. You know, as we see in some professional soccer games where they sometimes they work, sometimes coaches, you know, sub out too early. So I think it's an interesting perspective if the NCAA soccer ever moves in that direction. And moving on, kind of what they were all leading to is another rule change that most Division One athletes and coaches seem to be um, in support of is turning in stretching the season out a little longer um do you think changing this substitution rule is kind of would be 
a step towards that because it would allow players to be healthier. Um, and if you have less guys getting in the game, um, you can stretch that season out because guys are playing less minutes in a sense. So I, th- I think if you see the substitution rule changing anytime soon, I think you're going to start seeing the season length start to be extended. And that's kind of what they're in reference of. Oh, for sure. I agree. I mean, the substitution rule is going to happen. You know, I think it's something where, like, I think Tim Lenahan mentioned, it's hand-in-hand. Hand. If you expand the season, you change the substitution rule. Um, it just, you know, it only makes sense. Uh, for a short season, obviously, it makes sense to keep the same substitution rule or make slight adjustments to it just because, you know, like Damon had mentioned, you know, he, sometimes he likes, you know, playing Jerome Cristobal for 15 or 20 minutes, you know, off the bench and, you know, playing certain players, um, you know, a certain amount of time. So, you know... It, just like you said, if it's a lengthier season, change the rule to the three subs, and you know you only get three subs. If it's a short season, you know I would keep it or just tweak the substitution rule a little bit more. We spoke with editor and reporter at Top Drawer Soccer, Travis Clark, and here's what he had to say on the substitution rule, as well as the idea of changing the overtime structure in college soccer. What is one thing I would like to see changed? You know, I definitely think that the substitution rule would be. The way to go, I think an easy step would also be to get rid of overtime, like in the regular season. That's pretty silly, in my opinion. If you're going to have ties anyway, let's just, you know, <laughs> after 90 minutes, call it a draw sort of a deal. Instead of, you know, grinding out these players for even longer than they already are being in the short sort of compact season that they have. And then, you know, also what Travis Clark brought up to it was interesting. Besides the substitution rule, something you would change, as he mentioned, you know, something was the overtime rule about how ridiculous ridiculous it is, you know, during the regular season. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Yales? For overtime, uh, it, is, it is kind of a weird structure. Um, there's always been complaints about overtime at almost every level of soccer. I remember in high school, people hated shootouts just because the fact that you, you work for the entire game, you're playing this certain type of a certain it's it's almost like it's a completely separate game it's just it comes down to shooting pks which is a very small part of the game of soccer so i think changing the overtime would be um something i would like looked into i think substitution lengthening all that that's more important um to get to a higher level of soccer in america in general but um overtime is just something i think that can make the game a little smoother make the game a little more interesting and a little fairer for the players um but i'd be definitely into looking into doing that i mean how much would this help would it, if they changed the overtime rule would it help you know michigan state in their season they went to double overtime i think it was five or six seven times so that would have really been an advantage if they changed this rule where you know it's end of 90 minutes you just call it a tie you know, I agree with Travis where it should just be a postseason thing or, you know, a Big Ten tournament thing, obviously, where, you know, if you're tied at the end of 90 minutes, you know, because it's postseason or Big Ten, you know, tournament play where, you know, you need, that's where you go to the overtime. And then, you know, if all else fails, you do a shootout. I, I think it's, and it's good for player safeties, you know, so these guys aren't pulling up, you know, injured with hamstrings or, you know, bad backs or, uh, you know, like Cope played with his rib injury. I'm sure that wasn't very fun for him with the double overtime stuff. So I, and I think it's something that the NCAA needs to uh, definitely consider. Yeah, I think it's something they need to review just for those facts because the players and the coaches are 
saying they're already kind of playing too much in in a short amount of time. So if on top of that they're getting extra minutes after every game and it kind of feels like it's kind of not for nothing but just kind of not the right way that they would want to spend those minutes. They'd rather rest up and move on to the next game, call it a tie. Currently, the NCAA regular season runs from early August with preseason games to mid-December with the national championship game. Some Division I soccer coaches feel that the college soccer season should be reflective of the professional soccer season, meaning that the entire season should be played throughout the fall and spring. Well, I think, you know, you always want to try to elongate seasons and maybe spread them out a little bit more for the welfare of the student athlete, you know, playing, you know, a Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday is a, it's, it's, it's one thing to do it, you know, once in a while in a seven day stretch. It's another thing to do it, you know, six, seven times in a 12 week stretch. I think you're really asking a lot of these student athletes from a physical and mental standpoint and nowhere else around the world does that happen. Like I said, in the Premier League, you might see during a Christmas break, um, you know, they'll play that. You'll see a Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, but they're not doing that on a regular basis. Um, Long term, I think that the, 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 the move is to try to come up with a split season that, um, you know, correlates with kind of what the rest of the world is doing. And maybe not necessarily playing too many more games than we play now, which would be, you know, roughly around 25 if you count your spring season. Um, we'll kind of extend that over two different segments so that, you can properly, proper periodization and, and you know, acclimation um, in your preseason before you have to play a game and the same thing in the winter. You know, the problem is soccer is a non-revenue sport. So the longer a season is, the more money it costs the school. So the more money it costs the school, the more messes up bottom lines. Uh, you know, you're overlapping spring, which I think would be a great idea. You're overlapping with spring sports at the university. So, you know, I, for example, go back to Maryland. They, their stadium uses temporary stands during the fall that are gone in the spring because it's a track and field uh, pitch. So, you know, that's just one example of kind of the obstacle you would face outside of the money aspect of it. So, in theory, would it be great? Yes. Should it happen? I think so. But will it? That's a, you know, obviously a bigger question because that raises so many points and so many questions and. You know, you do it on the women's side, too, if you do it on the men's. You know, the, the, the sort of the odd thing about it, from my perspective, is, you know, college coaches are recruiting so heavily out of the Development Academy, and the Development Academy is all about the 10-month schedule where you're playing games 10 months out of the year for the most part. You're training, you know, you're playing FIFA substitution rules, and then for many of these guys, the next level for them is college soccer, which is August to December if you make it to the title game. You know, that's four teams or two teams or whatever. And then, you know, the dichotomy there is so vast when you look at that that it's just kind of a it's a puzzling thing if you want college soccer to remain a piece of a development puzzle. You know, they, you know, Tim and Damon had talked to us about, you know, they thought it was a good idea to stretch the season into the spring. Uh, one, a big reason was for both of them was because the championship is for soccer is one of the only championships that's played in cold weather and soccer is not a cold weather sport you know it's this game's played you know mid-december in kind of lukewarm temperature places this year was philadelphia it's been played you know down south in north carolina the past couple you know uh or a couple in the past years but i think that's something that you really need to consider if you're the ncaa that you know it 
the game overall would be better. And as a Tim Linhan mentioned, there'll be more people to watch the game and want to go to the game too, which will help the ratings. Yeah, I think what Tim said that was that was that was very important because that's almost like a business decision with the Big Ten Network. They do have that dead period in the spring where they don't have a lot of sports, and that's kind of a win-win. Big Ten gets highly followed game on airways when it normally wouldn't be. It feels kind of a deader a dead spot for them broadcast wise um, if you move it into spring, and like he said, you get a move up move the championship into a little warmer weather. We were at the Louisville game here in the second round of the NCAA tournament. It was freezing. It was snowing. And, and it, it probably had an effect on the game. And same thing in the Big Ten tournament with the wind. It had an effect on the game. National championship, it, was, it, was a very, it wasn't extremely cold, but it was a cold, cold game. And that has an effect. And it's just one of those things that right now it seems so easy. Just move something back or move allow the season to go a little longer and you're playing in 40 50 degree weather at least no matter where you are in the country and you can kind of have a fair fairer playing field but travis clark also brought up a good point too about how much it would cost these programs to elongate the season and i think that's a great point it's something that you have to money is always it's something you have to think about and you know can a non-revenue sport like soccer do that and also if you do this for men's, you need to do this for women's as well. So, you know, there, there's, you know, it, it, schools that have men's and women's soccer, you know, to expand both seasons, it, you know, it's it's a money issue too. So, you know, I don't know how they'd fund it or what they would do, but, uh, you know, that's something NCAA has to think about as well. Yeah, that's something Tim, Damon, Travis, um, they all said that it makes sense in their position in D1, they feel like. Um, they can't speak for everyone, but they feel like a lot of division coaches would agree. Divi- division one coaches would agree with that, but they are skeptical. They're not sure if division two and division three schools with less money, smaller programs, because if they made a rule change, it'd have to go down through division two and division three, um, and it seems like most likely it would be also on the women's side. So, in order to change that, like you said, it all comes down to money. Um, it might make sense in everyone's head, but someone's got to pay for it someone's got to make those rule changes so that's why it's all on the ncaa people are waiting for the ncaa to bring it about make the change um and they're probably looking at looking at it from a business standpoint of what makes the most sense money-wise for them and what makes the most sense for the athletes and coaches but it ultimately comes down to just what makes them the most sense in general and money has a huge factor in that so i i think that's what is going to kind of delay this and that's what this has been delaying this issue in these rule changes for a while is the money and just having to make a huge change in everyone's schedule because it's not just a quick fix where we say yeah all right michigan state you're going to play into this here's your new schedule you can now schedule guys into the spring and in the summer and we're just going to stretch it out it's not that easy in 1998 u.s soccer began the u-17 national team academy in bradenton florida to develop the youth talent in the united states since the growth of the development program in the in u.s soccer the college game has started to be perceived as a system that only focuses on championships in leander charlocken's article he brings up the important topic of the development of u.s soccer and how the game of college soccer is being played less is being is playing less of a role in developing players for u.s soccer 
In the first part of his four-part opinion series, Todd Durbin, Executive Vice President, Player Relations and Competition MLS, notes that they, as in college soccer, does not play year-round, and their focus is understandably on winning championships, which is not the same as focusing on developing players and turning them into professionals. While I think college soccer is still going to be an important part of the landscape for the, for, for the foreseeable future, I do see its role in terms of developing professionals decreasing over time. Well, I, I, I certainly disagree with that. I mean, look, at any level, there's there's the element of winning, you know, and there, the, the U.S. The academies have U18 and U16 national championships. They keep a running total of, you know, the scores and the, the the standings within each game. So, and who makes the playoffs? And there's certainly a pride that's going on to get to the, the national finals week to make the playoffs. So, um, you know, I go to those games. I see coaches making tactical adjustments to win games, not just to develop players. And I think that's part part of developing a player when he's 17, 18 is learning how to win games. You know, that knowing that you know what you have to adjust. Maybe if you're up to nothing and play a little differently, or if you're down, how you're going to play, or or those kinds of things. So, um, and that's what comes out in the in the college game as well, you know. And I think the other thing is, is you know, the, you look at some of the college games, like we played Michigan this year. There was 2,500 people at the game. It was a tough environment. The pace was good. There was good soccer being played, you know. Um, Players are going to develop in those types of environments, and we're certainly not the only one. There's, you know, a ton of colleges across the country that do that. And, you you know, I've gone to some of the MLS reserve games, and certainly there's talented players and probably more talented players than what Division One soccer can put out. But it's all a Sunday morning on a 10 a.m. Sometimes there's some U18 Academy kids thrown in there, and I, I don't know if there's that competition um that you may, you know, that they need to be pre- prepared for because those regular MLS games, there's nothing more competitive in this country than those MLS games. There's not a better level. That's getting better and better. So, you know, for me, college does help prepare players and develop them for, for those types of environments. And, yeah, as you know, my, you know, my uh, opinions about how a lot of these college, a lot of these writers are calling college soccer. It's only you know built for championships and development academies to build you know to develop. You know, and Damon said that you know that's a bunch of hoo ha, because you know these guys are you know they're playing for points, they're playing for championships. What's kind of your uh, perspective on people calling college soccer only built for championships? I I think, like they all say, Tim Tim said it. He would get fired if he wasn't producing talent. If he wasn't taking a freshman, and when his, by his senior year he wasn't a better player, um, and every year he's expected to make him better. That's they get fired if they don't do that. So I think that's just a, that's an obvious point that it's not only about championships. It's about player development. It's about taking a raw talent in the beginning and turning them into um, a, a complete player, and that's the goal of every single coach for every single player. Um, so I, that's, I, I disagree with that as well. I don't think it's just about winning a trophy um, and they don't care about getting a guy to the next level. And the proof is there with what they said about the national teams down in Mexico. They, th- these kids are playing and they're coming from colleges. So guys are developing players. And I think uh, winning championships and searching for like a team goal like that every single year throughout an entire platform of D1, D2, and D3 that makes that allows players to develop. They're all trying to get to the same goal. All the coaches are trying to get better. They're trying to get better players. It's developing players just 
as a fact as and as a result of searching for that one goal and trying to reach that one like the one unreachable trophy and the only one team can get there so all these guys are going to be fighting over each other trying to get better and better so they can get there so i think it you develop players just by the fact of having a championship i mean i agree uh, it's you know like tim on hand to the side deal like you mentioned you know you, you you shouldn't be a coach if you're not developing players in college soccer or you shouldn't be a coach in general yeah that's what a coach's job is to do it's literally develop. what a coach is a coach's job is to coach a player it's not to just they're not brought in to win a trophy or get a trophy somehow it's to it's to coach it's to teach these guys on and off the field um how to develop their skills, how to develop their personality, everything. Their coach, they're tra- they're training them. U.S. Soccer started the U.S. Develop- Development Academy in 2007, which was started to help develop the youth soccer players in the United States. The U.S. Development Academy began as a three-month schedule, but then it was switched to a ten-month schedule to make it exactly like the professional soccer schedule. The switch to a ten-month schedule has put pressure on college coaches to develop players. I think it's very beneficial. Um, again, like I've said, I don't think there's a perfect, uh, an exact answer or a system. I think what you have to do is look at everything and take the best practice. And right now, I think the U.S. Soccer Academy is the best practice for development. They they look at how they train. They're expecting guys, that, coaches to train. They're not playing four or five games in a weekend, which some of the other U.S soccer stuff is doing or the u.s club stuff is doing so um yeah do we want kids traveling two hours certainly not does that affect some of the things yes you know um there are some some uh mls academies that are starting to put kids up in high school and do it a little bit more like the barcelona's but i think at the end of the day it's about are you developing players are you putting them in competitive environments um and are they learning the game of how it should be played? And I think for the most part, the U.S. soccer academies do that. The academy, here, here's some of the faults with the academy. that, that they One is, there is no academy. There's no academy. The, 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 the notion of an academy, to me, means a physical plant where people live. So if you're in Barcelona's academy, that means there's dorms. That means there's fields that means you live there you roll out you go you do your work whatever well we don't have academies we have kids driving two and a half and three hours to play a high level club soccer there's not really any physical academies you know so that's the one thing the other thing is they play every they play every weekend so uh saturday and sunday so you're playing back to back anyway the other thing is because this is a you know a, a large country. Once you get out of that northeast corridor, you know you, you travel to your games. You're traveling ten hours in some cases. You know if you're in the Midwest here and you got to go up your game and you're playing with the Scott Gallagher and you got to go play the Minnesota Thunder on the weekend. You know that's a twelve thirteen hour bus ride. You know so a lot of time spent traveling in the academies. And, you know, if they're training four days a week, that means kids are traveling two hours. No other place in the world would construct their academy system like that. Well, let's, let's first off, you know, if you're comparing the academies here in America to Barcelona, you know, there's a vast, vast, vast gulf between Barcelona and not just school uh, academies here, but um, the academies around the world, you know, because it's just a completely different ballgame. 
you know, here it's trying to fit something into a completely different aspect. So I think the concept of an academy is good because um, player development was never really emphasized as much, especially when you're looking at Major League Soccer clubs because they were more about just surviving. You know, they, you know, they look, look just a little more than a decade ago, they were uh, contracting teams. Now, you know, there's an expansion boom. They're going up to, whatever, 22 teams now. So now that they're at this different juncture in sort of their growth, they need to make an emphasis on academy, on development, in order to, you know, help their own teams, but then also to help the U.S. national team and U.S. soccer in general. So, you know, I'm going to disagree with that point and say that, you know, you, you, have, you should still call them academies. You know, the, the difference, I think, between, say, academy here and academies over in Spain, Germany, whatever, you have so many of these little clubs that are like, you know, third, fourth, fifth division that are, they have their own youth teams and their own academies, and they can make a little bit of money off of developing players and selling them to the bigger teams. So here we don't have that. We have, you know, your random clubs that are no have no pro affiliation, and their, their main goal, which it should be, is getting kids to play college soccer because, you know, that's what keeps them going. That's what pays their bills. All right, Brooks, you heard what Damon said. I mean, I think he's right. I mean, there's really, I, I don't think there's a model. You know, it's not something that like a scientific equation that we, if you do it every time, you're gonna get the right answer. It, it's something like that where it depends on if you're comparing an academy. It depends on the structure of it. You know, are you are you doing the basic things? To, to, are you covering the basics to make the player good in the basics, like your foot skills? You know how your touch, how how well you communicate with other players. You know, there's the basics of that, and then there's the more advanced stuff where you know, you know, the, the tactical side, how you defend, how you attack. Uh, you know, making runs in the field. You know, uh, whether that's you know overlapping players or you know one twos or or whatnot. There's just there's just, there's different ways to develop players, but if you're covering the tactics of the game and you have the basics of the you know soccer down for the players i think you know that's a way of developing a player and you know and like damon also mentioned as well we have these guys that played college soccer that are now playing for the u.s and tim also mentioned this as well you know they're on the world cup squad you know so obviously whatever the academies are doing they're they're doing something very well obviously because they're producing homegrown talent but also, college soccer is doing something very well because they're taking what the academies have done and they're you know they're making the players even better, building them up physically as well. I think that's something that you don't see in the academy. You know, I can't speak to. We'd have to ask one of the players. But I definitely say that weight training is probably not one of the things you want kids to do at 16 and 17 because their bodies haven't fully developed. Whereas when they get to college in the 18 to 21, 22, 23-year-old range, you know, you can start building their bodies and forming them, you know, to get to get physically ready for matches. Going back to what you're saying, but what do you think the future of these academies are? Do you think they're going to continue to allow college soccer to do their thing, allow the academies to keep building towards maybe a European-style thing? Um, and also, what do, you, what do you think you prefer? Would you like to see us go about it our own way? Uh, America, in a sense, go it about our own way, build our own system, or do you think we should build off something that has been successful for Europeans? I mean, honestly, the smart way to do it is if I'm running an academy team, you know, I'm in charge of that, you know, whether I'm an MLS team or just, you know, a, 
you know, travel soccer club that's in the MLS is that's in the U.S. Development Academy. You know, I I don't I don't want to cut my ties with college soccer because for some players, just like Tim Lenahan said, you know, you may have your lights out Landon Donovan, but that's like one time in a generation. You don't have that every day, and I think college soccer is a viable option for kids to go play. So you don't want to the Development Academy in the U.S. You know, really, they don't have any ties the MLS and U.S. soccer to college soccer. You know, they don't fund anything, as we've heard from you know the coaches and uh, and Travis. But you know, it's something where you don't want to cut ties and start skipping college soccer because I think you know the physicality of a soccer match is just as important as your tactical skills. Because if you're not built, you don't have the body built to play college, built to play professional soccer you know, people are going to run over you because there's bigger people and more physical players than you. And that's, you know, whether they've lifted for a very long time or, like, they're just biased or just built better than, you know, some other people because some people just have that freak athletic, you know, physical body. Do you think there's always going to be a gap between college soccer, U.S. academies, and then U.S. academies and foreign academies? Do you think there always going to be some type of gap where maybe in college soccer and the U.S. academies there's kind of this disconnect and U.S. academies compared to European there might we're, we might not ever be on their level or on their kind of like their organization the way they go about it and we're all we'll always be doing our own thing I mean sure I mean these academies in Europe and Spain you know all over Europe and whatnot, they've been going on for a very long time. I mean, this isn't something new they've just started. You know, they, you know, we've heard stuff in, you know, the media where, you know, Real Madrid will sign a 13-year-old player to their academy program. I mean, they're, they're just different. They, they've they set their, they've set it up structurally where, you know, which is something that I think America wish they, you know, they could do more often. But, you know, the public school, I feel like a big part of it's the education thing. Whereas I feel like it differs a little in Europe where it's not as structured. I don't want to, I can't really speak so much to that. I don't know the structure of it, but from the feeling I get is it's not as structured as American, you know, education is where we expect you as a, as an American citizen to go to school K through 12 and you're in a public school or private school, you know, uh, system and, you know, you have these European academies who, hey, I'm going to take a 12, 13-year-old and we're going to have our own little school, but it's going to be pretty much about you playing soccer and you getting a good education, which I think is not a bad thing. I think it's a good thing they do that. But you, this is something you don't, you're not, I don't think you're really going to see a lot of, you know, or, you know, I don't know, maybe, like, again, I can't speak to, Damon mentioned that some of the MLS teams are starting to do this. But I don't know how many of the overall academy teams all of them can do this because, you know, like I said, some of these academy teams are just, you know, uh, travel soccer clubs that play at a very good high level but may not have the funding to do an academy program like they do over in Europe. So it's going to differ in, uh, you know, it's going to differ in the U.S. unless some of these, you know, like, a, like you know, for instance, the Michigan Wolves, now they're with they're joining with the Columbus Crew. They're called the Crew Academy Wolves. So maybe, you know, if they join with, you know, they just they join with the Crew Academy, maybe they get some funding to start their own type of academy program. But then you got to think of, like, where dorm's going to go. you got to hire teachers. To make, you got to make sure these kids are getting educated well. They have good, you know, they have good teachers teaching them stuff, you know, that they pass and they at least get, you know, a GED or, you know, a high school diploma. 
So it's you know there's there's a lot of complications in this, but as far as if you're talking about development wise, you know I think the European academies have are you know, have it over the the U.S. academies because they start the intense training at a younger age, and I don't know how competitive competitively they play at a younger age, but you know they get they get kids getting more touches on the ball, which is very important, and they probably teach tactics. To children earlier than they would here necessarily. No, I can't speak to that. That's just my, that's what I'm guessing. But yeah, so that's kind of my opinion on that. Yeah, I think it comes back to education as well. Like you said, I can't speak for the education of the academies in Europe, but a college education here seems like it would at least rival that. All right, and that about does it here on Corner Kick. Um, we would like to send out a good thanks to Northwestern's men head soccer coach Tim Lenahan, as well as editor and reporter at Top Drawer Soccer Travis Clark, and also the men's head coach at Michigan State, Damon Rensing, and finally redshirt freshman Jerome Cristobal. Um, you will be able to find us on iTunes coming up in the next couple weeks, hopefully, um, and you're also able to find us at Impact Sports under corner kick and i'm jonathan yales and in studio i had brooks lambeer helping me out today as a co-host and i'd like to thank him for coming on thank you and yeah this is the last corner kick look for another one coming up next week Genesis of this goal. Balotelli, Aguero.